Um, again, we're going to be in Malachi chapter 1, verses uh, 1 through 14. The oracle of the world of, word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jack- jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to you, present that to your governor, and will, will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kyle. Good morning, everyone. I know what you're thinking. I'm not Steve, and that was not the Gospel of Matthew. Correct on both accounts. So, uh, for those of you who don't know, Pastor Steve and his wife are about to welcome a little girl into their family, and let's just say last night into early this morning, they were put on red alert and felt it best to stay home. So, thus, I am up here. And relatedly, if Baby Reed comes uh, sometime this week, that means you're going to be stuck with me for the foreseeable future. So, I'll let you decide if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Up to you. Uh, but for those of you who don't know me, my name is Andrew Workman. I'm one of the lay elders here. The word lay there simply means that my vocation is not full-time ministry, which is why I'm not up here very often. Um, but in addition to that, we are going to be taking a break from the series of Matthew, which I don't know if you guys realized we've been in Matthew since last Christmas. We started with the birth narrative in Matthew last Christmas, so we felt that before we get to this Christmas, we were probably due for a break. So that coincided nicely with Steve's paternity leave. And so I'll be walking with all of you over the next four weeks through the uh, one of the minor prophets, the book of Malachi. So in your Bibles, Malachi is joined at the hip at the book with the book of Matthew, as it's the last book in the Old Testament and therefore right next to Matthew. And chronologically speaking, it is also the last book to be written before Jesus shows up on the scene about 400 years later. 
So the audience here is post-exilic Israel, which is a fancy way for saying that the Israelites that were taken captive to Babylon have now returned to rebuild their lives, the temple, Jerusalem. So this makes Malachi a late contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah. So this means that the audience in Israel had been back for a little while. That's important context because, as we'll see throughout the book, the spiritual lives of Israel had already gotten stagnant, stale, and, and pretty apathetic. The feeling of the day was that when they returned from Babylon, then the Messiah would come. And what's happened is not that. So now they're dealing with the gritty work of rebuilding things and the reality of long-term obedience to God without the payoff that they had in mind. So the structure of the book. Malachi is structured into a series of six disputations or charges that God brings against the people of Israel. So Malachi is the prophet, which is someone who conveys God's word to his people, typically regarding a call to repentance or communicating future judgment. So Malachi is the prophet through whom God is speaking, and within each section or charge, God brings a charge, then the people of Israel respond to that charge, and then God responds to their response. So the theme for our series over the next four weeks is faithfulness fulfilled. So behind each of these charges of covenant violations, they all have the root cause of a lack of faith. And we'll see that even though we, too, are unfaithful, through the perfect faithfulness of Jesus, we can be brought near to God and live in a chaotic, painful world with peace and joy. So first up in today's passage, we have our first charge that God brings to the Israelites, which is the charge of polluted and corrupted worship. So we see in this passage God describing the ways that Israel has become lazy, irreverent, and apathetic in their worship and the consequences of doing so. So we'll walk through this passage through three ways. Uh, First, we'll look at the polluted worship of the Israelites. Second, we'll look at what true worship is. And third, we'll look at the perfect sacrifice. So first, polluted worship, second, true worship, and third, the perfect sacrifice. All right, polluted worship. Let's pick up in verse 6. It says, But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? So the bottom line here is that the Israelites have violated the covenant that they made with God. They have broken Old Testament law by offering subpar and illicit sacrifices to God. And now through Malachi, God is prosecuting the violation of this law. So the law handed down to Moses and in the Torah demanded that spotless animals be used as sacrificial offerings. And there was a complex recipe for what animals needed to be used for which types of sacrifices. So for example, if a high priest committed sin, a spotless bull was to be used in that case. Uh, For a sin involving a regular person, a sheep without blemish was the prescription. So the heart behind these seemingly complex offerings was to present something that was holy to a holy God. Now, obviously, Wooly the Lamb here is not holy per se, uh, but symbolically an animal or a thing without blemish was the only thing that could atone for sin. So you can see how, right, what the Israelites were doing in Malachi was so egregious. Not only were they not following the law, They're implicitly denying the holiness of God by offering up blemished and sickly animals because they're saying that this sickly and blemished thing can atone for my sin, right? It's blasphemous and the holy God will not stand for it. So we should be asking, 
If the law is so clear, it was literally written in stone, right? Why are they doing this? Why are they polluting their worship when the law is so clear? And the answer is twofold here we see in this text, convenience and apathy. So in terms of convenience, consider a bit what they're being asked for. So in an agrarian society, a spotless animal represents one of your most prized possessions of wealth. Animals were wealth, and relinquishing a spotless one would put a dent in any one of their imaginary bank accounts. Furthermore, when it comes to animal husbandry and breeding, I bet you thought you never thought you would hear that this morning. When it comes to animal husbandry and breeding, everything depends on good bloodlines, and you want to breed your best livestock as much as you can in order to get better quality and quantity out of your herd. So when an offering needs to be made, you're taking away future wealth as well, right? You can't quick breed woolly there as as much as possible before you have to go sacrifice woolly, right? On the flip side, sickly animals were dead weight. So they were prone to dying more easily, obviously. Their meat wasn't as good or plentiful. You couldn't really sell them or use them as a dowry. And they're just hard to take care of. I mean, you try being the shepherd of a herd of blind sheep, it is probably not going to work out very well for you. Not to mention the system was also not very efficient, right? So oftentimes the people had to travel long distances to make these sacrifices. So all that to say is worship for them was hard, it was inconvenient, it was expensive, and it was really tiring. I, uh, I used to live in Dubai for a short but very sweet period of my life, and one weekend I went to visit a camel farm. And so I got there, and I, I, I met with the farmer, and there are two pens of camels, and so we went over to the, the one. Very cool creatures. I was like, these are, wow, that is very impressive. But then I looked over at the other pen of camels, and these were, like, amazing camels. These were pristine units of animals. Like, they were muscular, groomed, not like the camels that I was standing in front of. And I was like, well, what's, what's the deal with that pen of camels? And he's like, oh, those are racing camels. They cost millions of dollars, and you are not going near them. <laughs> it's like, message received. Don't let Andrew near the racing camels. But they, they were prized possessions, and that's essentially what Israel is being asked to offer up to God each time when they sin or if they want to make a worship offering. It's also clear, in addition to convenience, that the people were apathetic in their worship. So it's not in this week's text, but one of the main themes in Malachi is apathy from the people because they didn't believe that they were getting what they deserved from God. They looked around at all the Gentiles and other gods, uh, followers of other gods prospering, and were like, well, why aren't I getting that? See, in their minds, they, they weren't getting the expected payout from their worship, and that explains what we see in verses 12 and 13. But you say, what weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord. See, the people thought that if they worshipped and followed the law, they'd get what they want. And while the Lord does bless those that are obedient to him, the blessing is often not in the form that we think is best for us. And when you spend all of this wealth, all of this time, all of this effort into worship, what happens when you don't get what you want from God? The answer is worship becomes weary, which is what God says the Israelites are feeling. Worship feels burdensome to them, a weight or a chore that they have to complete or check off their list. So they mail it in, right? Since they not, they're not getting what they want from God following his commands, they do the bare minimum to cover their bases. It says they even have contempt for it or snort at it, which is the natural next step. 
Burden turns to weary, turns to contempt, which turns to contempt for the very thing that they actually need the most. Their worship is polluted from, from top to bottom. So we can take a few applications here. So in effect, what, what the Israelites were really worshiping were convenience, comfort, money, and themselves. One of the most important exercises that we can do in this life is to take stock of what we're worshiping. Our society, our society is constantly pushing us to worship anything but God. So we should be asking ourselves, what, how do I know what I'm worshiping? As one author put it, we worry about what we worship. We worry about what we worship. See, our worries and anxieties are often clear signposts to the things we are worshiping. And honestly, you guys, they're, they're good things, usually. They're just never meant to be worshiped. So for me, these days, I spend a lot of time worrying about my kids, their physical health, their safety, their behavior, their future salvation. Good things on their own, but I elevate it to a place of importance that it simply shouldn't be. I make an idol out of them and seek fulfillment through it. And so what do you worry about? And do you think maybe behind that worry, you've made an idol out of that thing, and it's now the object of misplaced worship? Another similar diagnostic of what we worship can be found in verse 8. God says, present that, meaning the polluted worship, to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? So God's implying here that the Israelites give better worship to their political ruler, that they wouldn't dare bring the governor a sickly animal in worship. And so we can ask similar questions. What do I give better worship to than God? And here, better worship, we can think of that through, what do I give more attention to? What do I give more time to? What do I give more thought space to? What are my actions driven by? I think, I think one of the lies that we tell ourselves is that our polluted and misdirected worship doesn't hurt anyone else. We think, it, you know, with worship, it's just between us and God, right? But that's not the case biblically, nor it is the case today. So because a portion of the priest's diet came from these sacrifices, it meant that when the Israelites offered sickly animals and poor quality sacrifices, the Levitical priests had to eat worse quality food, if at all. It affected them in a very real way. And when our worship is polluted, it affects those around us. And one of the main benefits when we lift our eyes and hearts in praise to God is that we aren't gazing inward at our own selves. And so it shouldn't take a lot of imagination to see what that might mean for the relationships that we have around us. We'll be more thoughtful. The world won't revolve around us. We won't cripple ourselves and others with worry. And we'll be free to live for others and for God because we're giving our glory to him. See, the best thing that you can do for your neighbor, your spouse, your children, your coworkers is offer true worship to God. That brings us to point two. What is true worship? This text tells us quite a bit about what true worship is and isn't. So we're going to look at, walk through some of the elements which constitute wor- true worship, starting with time. So we saw in this passage the Israelites are trying to cut corners in their sacrifices and make things a little too efficient, shall we say. Uh, they're taking the quick and easy way out. The thing is, if you think about it, true worship is perhaps the most inefficient thing we can do according to the world. Because we lay down our machines, we still our bodies, and profess that there is a greater being that demands our attention and adoration than anything else in this world. Focusing on God and his word and his community can mean a decrease in societal productivity. Are we comfortable with that? I know often I'm not. Or put another way, intimacy with God and his church 
takes chunks of time we are loath to part with. So it'll mean less time to finish that project at work. It'll create gaps in your email response time, make you miss the window to beat traffic, lose the opportunity to fit in that errand. Or something that convicts me takes away the only me time I might have in an exhausting day. It seems like in our society we're just a little too busy for God. Except when we need him to do something for us. Except when the outcome might benefit us. And if we can't see the outcome benefiting us, we will either offer plastic worship like the Israelites in Malachi or just sink into the quicksand god of busyness and drown ourselves in our calendars. That's what society is forming us to do. It constantly steals our attention and therefore devotion one app at a time, one email at a time, one t-ball game at a time, one concert at a time. It's a worship of numbness, of self-medication and distraction. And when your actions and time point to that as being your real God, it does make true worship seem wearisome. Like it's another thing on your plate that you have to handle. You think, oh, and I have to squeeze in 10 minutes of quiet time or else God will get mad at me or I won't get that promotion at work. And when true worship becomes wearisome, it makes distraction even easier. And it just becomes this never-ending feedback loop of being distracted by the world and feeling weary when we go and try to do worship. God wants to be in a relationship with us, and relationships take an incredible amount of time to build. And when we think we can give God a quick five minutes in the morning, it's a bit like going on a blind date and thinking it'll lead to a wedding later that night. Maybe in Vegas, not with God. So next, true worship takes recognition of sin. So if the Israelites truly had any idea of the depth of their sin and what it meant to sin against a perfectly holy God, they would, not, they would have never thought subpar sacrifices would do. Because if we can't see our sin as damaging and egregious, then we're not going to see our need for a Savior. And if we can't see our need for a Savior, we aren't going to want to worship Jesus for saving us from something that we never needed to be saved from in the first place. And see, understanding the depth of our sin and having a holy despair about it leads us deeper into the grace of God. And from seeing our sin nailed on the cross with Christ and our slate wiped clean, that should launch us into heartfelt worship of our great God. The unfortunate reality is that our hearts will only get harder and harder the more we worship without recognizing and confessing sin. So next, worship is meant to be frequent. So this is from verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. So first and foremost, this is a beautiful foreshadowing of God opening up salvation to the Gentiles, as God is stating that he will be revered among all nations and all peoples. But he's also indicating here that he is worthy of unceasing worship. So the application here, we, we should not let our quiet time or prayer in the morning be the only time we talk to God during the day. We can talk to God about everything and have a running conversation through our heads each day. See, more communication with God naturally begets more unceasing worship. I got some odd looks when I shared this in community group a couple months ago, but I talked to God about my plants. Uh, as many of you know, I love gardening, and... I Usually I'm commenting on the state of my chamomile or my tomatoes, yes, but oftentimes I naturally can't help but gaze at a plant and think, wow, I cannot believe that I'm in relationship with the one who made that. More communication begets more worship. 
our worship was never meant to be only at certain times of the day. It's to be a life of unceasing worship. Talk to God throughout the day. Comment on things. Tell him your worries, your anxieties, what you're feeling, what you're seeing. And you'll find that it'll naturally beget more worship. So another element of worship that we see in this text is sincerity. You can't worship a God that you think you can manipulate. So recall the Israelites were upset with not getting what they wanted, and so they decided to mail it in with their worship. They were trying to manipulate God into getting what they thought they deserved. And so when we try to manipulate God in our prayers and through our worship, what we're really worshiping is ourselves and our own desires. And a relationship based on manipulation is not much of a relationship at all. So lastly, the last element we see here, true worship is authentic. So in verse 13, God says, the Israelites brought sacrifices that were taken from others. We do this in the modern context by living off spiritual vitality that is not ours. So let me explain that a little bit. In our modern world, where we can take in you know, podcast after podcast and profound book after profound book, we actually run the risk of gradually relying on other people to prop up our spiritual lives. And instead of spending more time in intimate prayer or reading the word, we actually spend far more time listening to people talking about prayer or reading the word. And obviously in proper amounts, that is a very healthy thing. You know, praise God for those wise people. Uh, but in our binge society, I've noticed in my own life that I start to subconsciously mistake a thought-provoking book or a podcast or someone else's deep thoughts as about God as filler for my own relationship with God. They can inform it, yes, but it's easy for it to replace spending actual time with them. It'd be like if I asked a coworker to talk to me about my wife and use that as a substitute for getting to know her instead of just spending time with her, right? So those are the elements that we see in this text of true worship, but I want to consider what happens if you are in a season where worship is really hard and even painful. And so I'll cover two today. So worship in seasons of suffering and in doubt. So when suffering comes, worship's the last thing you want to do. It is. Um, instead of lifting praises to God, we cry out in anguishing and questioning. And everything in us revolts against the idea of praising a God that would let this thing happen to us. But I, I want to submit to you that we can offer our suffering as a tender worship offering to God. Not tender as in warm and cuddly, but, but as in a raw, sensitive, painful tenderness. We can go to God and offer our suffering as a season and as a thing for him to enter into, to inhabit, to meet us in. We can open up the depths of our pain to him. Psalms show us that many times this is worship to God because it's acknowledging his power and inviting him into our pain. It's like inviting him to come in and weep with us on the couch instead of keeping him out of the house entirely. He wants to be near to us in our suffering, and allowing him in is a form of worship. In suffering, we can also praise God for his sustaining grace, which is different than his delivering grace. So we pray for the grace of deliverance from our suffering, but we often miss the sustaining grace he offers us in each day in our seasons of pain. So Vanitha Risner is an author who writes a lot about suffering and, and someone who really helped me during my period of physical suffering a couple years ago. This is what she writes. She says, everyone loves the grace that delivers us, but the Israelites, like us, were dissatisfied with daily manna. 
we all complain about the grace that merely sustains us. We all complain about sustaining grace. Were my prayers for deliverance and suffering answered with the grace of sustenance? Did I not see that this was an answer? See, in our suffering, we can worship God in that season for just sustaining us, for giving us breath, for waking us up in the morning, for the people around us. And so may the everyday sustaining grace he offers be the cause of our worship. The other season where we often don't feel like worship that I want to mention this morning is doubt. So how do we possibly begin to worship God when we're struggling to believe? When the thing that we've built our entire life around, we're not entirely sure is true. It's a, it's a really deeply isolating place to be in, particularly if you're still in the church. As the great Lebanese author Khalil Gibran said, for doubt is too lonely a pain to know that faith is his twin brother. And one of the enemy's greatest plays in his book is to use doubt as an impetus for cutting someone off from the church and from other believers. And so in this context, pursuing and living through doubt in church community is a form of worship to God because you're not closing the door on him, but instead recognizing that his church can give you a space to process and ask questions. And choosing to remain in those relationships, that's incredibly glorifying to God. And the great beauty of it is that he's going to continue to use you in others' lives, even through your doubt. Our remaining presence in doubt is worship to God. So now let's turn to the object of our worship, Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. So you may have noticed, maybe not, but thus far we've completely ignored verses 1 through 5. But they're actually the key to understanding this text and the book of Malachi as a whole. And it's how God frames these charges. So how does he frame them? He says in verse 2, I have loved you. Just that. I have loved you. This is the key. So God is starting this correction from a place of love. He's appealing to the Israelites on the foundation of his love for them and his demonstration of it. So he's not some cold-blooded landlord taking his tenant to court for the first time. He's a dad. He's a father talking to his cherished sons and daughters. Then in verse 2 says, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I hated. So this verse is referring back to Genesis and his election of Jacob and his rejection of Esau before they were born. So he's reminding Israel here that they are his elected people and that he loves them. And therefore, what we have here is a father that loves his children and wants their hearts in worship. He's chomping at the bit for them to repent and enter into true worship and deeper relationship. The same is true for us. I think if we're honest, it's, it's hard to understand the depths of the blasphemy here that the Israelites, as well as us, so often engage in by offering our polluted worship. And so as a result, we tend to see this text and, and other prophets in the Bible and think, man, God is, he's really a stickler for these rules. He's a little petty, it seems. It seems, seems harsh, right? And so then the temptation is, you know, to see the God of the Old Testament as the stick in the mud, as this crotchety God that will sling down punishment from his high horse the second someone gets a rule wrong. But that's, that's not the case. God's character and his sacrificial love for his people are found throughout the whole Bible. And not only do we have this framing and foundation of covenantal love that God expresses here in verses 2 and through 5, other parts of the Old Testament reveal the loving God he is as well. 
So listen to what God says through the priest Samuel. I think it should be up on the screen here in 1 Samuel 12. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to listen the fat of rams. So through Samuel, God is revealing that he's after our hearts in worship, not performance or ritual. And I love that God uses the word listen there, right? It implies this desire for closeness, for intimacy, for communication. God says explicitly that that is better than the fat of rams on an altar. He's after our heart. And let us not forget the, the story of Abraham, who intended to obey God and sacrifice his son Isaac. A stomach-churning request, if there ever was one. But God saw that Abraham's heart was wholly devoted to him, and instead he provided Abraham a perfect ram as an offering instead. Even in the Old Testament, we see this as God's heart. His heart never changes, and in a similar way, he provided a way for us to atone for all the sins of humanity and engage in right worship. But see, only a perfect sacrifice can do that, and it was done on the cross. Jesus, the Son of God, became our perfect sacrifice and atoned for our sins. So, right, had he been blemished or sinful in any way, it would have been polluted worship, just like in Malachi. But he was the spotless lamb, worthy of appeasing a holy God's wrath and judgment. See, Jesus had to die because our lives and feeble works could never be offered up as a sacrifice to God. Jesus had to go to the cross because he was the only perfect being that ever existed, and therefore the only one enough to atone for the sin of humanity. The difference, though, is with Christ versus Abraham and the ram is that God did not wait for us to give our hearts to him before Jesus went to the cross. See, with Abraham, he waited till the last second to see if he was devoted. But with us, Christ suffered and and died and became the perfect sacrifice while we were still sinners, before we knew him. God made a way for us long before we could ever choose him. And that was his plan all along. God legislated Old Testament law with Christ's sacrifice in mind. It all points to Jesus. His character has never changed, and he's always been after our hearts. And we can answer the question posed by the Israelites here in chapter 1. How has God loved us? The answer is he's loved us by sending his one and only son to die for us before we profess devotion to him. And that, friends, is the true to key worship. That answer should send our hearts tumbling over and over like a leaf in the wind into a posture of true worship. It was meant to. And we'll find that all true worship comes from a heart that just can't get over the cross and perfect sacrifice. Let's pray.